This is a podcast from the June 17th, 2008 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the first session relating to academic integrity, a report on the NCAA Academic Performance Program, and the recommendations to improve academic performance of men's basketball players. During this session, panelists discussed the most recent NCAA academic data and discussed the progress, trends, and challenges presented. Also, in response to the overall low academic performance of men's basketball players in particular, the NCAA recently convened a special committee to study whether sports-specific reforms were needed to enhance those athletes' academic performances, similar to the process that recently was concluded for baseball. The Commission and panelists discussed the preliminary recommendations and concepts discussed by the Men's Basketball Academic Enhancement Working Group. This podcast runs approximately 1 hour and 40 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. Let me just introduce them. We'll start. uh, Wally, would you put up your hand, Wally Renfo? Wally has uh, been at the NCAA for, I think, 35 years or so, and uh, he's a vice president and senior advisor to the NCAA president. Uh, we have Todd Petter, um, who is the managing director of NCAA Research. He's uh, provided leadership for the NCAA uh, research operation for two decades now, I think, uh, Todd. Uh, Bill Reagan who's Director of Membership Services. Bill oversees the Academic Performance Program and Progress Toward Degree Waivers. He staffs the Men's Basketball Academic Enhancement Work Group as well uh, and the um, uh, similar group that's going to be studying football, I think. Isn't that right, Bill? And uh, we're also very pleased to have with us uh, Paul Hewitt, who uh, I think all of us uh, have seen on television at least, if uh, not met personally. He's the head basketball coach at Georgia Tech and um, president of the Black Co- Coaches Association. So, gentlemen, we thank you very much for uh, being here this morning. And uh, our plan is to have each of you um, uh, make uh, a brief presentation, and then we'd like to engage you in uh, some discussion. Uh, over the uh, academic performance of student athletes and the APR. So um, I'm not sure, Wally, are you going to uh, lead off the commentary? I'll, I'll uh, try to kick this off and thank you very much for the opportunity to, uh, to do this. Um, I, uh, I have to acknowledge that I feel, um, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm really sitting in for two of the stars of, of, uh, of academic reform. Uh, Walt Harrison has, as you all know, is, has done and continues to do a remarkable job chairing the um, committee that has uh, been the overseer for uh, academic reform, and he's he's uh, he's done a tremendous job, and he continues to do a, a great job of uh, moving this uh, along. And Kevin Lennon, um, our vice president of membership services. Has, has carried a, a lot of, of the weight for uh, implementation of our academic reform. We're in the fourth year now of data collection uh, in academic reform. Frankly, we're in the uh, about the sixth year as a staff of, uh, of t- 
talking about and trying to develop a level of academic reform that is different, frankly, than anything that I've seen in, in, our, in, in intercollegiate athletics. I think it's been a very different uh, process and a very different way to go at it. I think it's also clear that we are, uh, that we have uh, real traction in terms of the impact of academic reform. I don't believe that there's anyone in Division I intercollegiate athletics that any longer uh, um, believes that it isn't here to stay, that it isn't serious, and that they're not paying attention to it. When Miles and I uh, travel around the country and we're on uh, various campuses, this is the first, uh, almost always the first topic that, that comes up in, in conversation. Um, how those programs are uh, making the adjustments, um, what they are trying to uh, accomplish, uh, it has become um, the, the topic of considerable discussion when administrators uh, get together. I think over time we're going to see that academic reform in the iteration that we've had in place now for the last four years is perhaps going to be one of the most impactful things that has ever happened to intercollegiate athletics. Uh, it is going to change the, the, the way we um, in, engage student athletes. Uh, we're in the process of seeing that happen. We've seen steady improvement uh, over the last few years in almost all sports. And this year, we saw improvement in men's basketball, which was the one sport that we had not seen improvement in in the past. We're seeing the APRs steadily increase. We're seeing the eligibility um, uh, rates continue, uh, continue to uh, improve. And the same thing with retention rates. Uh, so we, we know that we are making a difference. Um, I think one of the things that is true about uh, academic reform, but that has been, even though we've said it a lot, has been difficult for everyone to grasp. The goal has been to see improvement. What we wanted to see was change. We wanted to see a change in behavior. We wanted to see a change in the way institutions were addressing the academic success of the student athletes on their teams. The 925 and the 900 uh, benchmarks are exactly that. They're, they're benchmarks. These are not pass-fail thresholds. This isn't, these aren't, these aren't uh, marks where if you fall below it, you are automatically a failure. What we're looking for is improvement. Uh, I think there's been a sense especially in this last year, that perhaps uh, that we haven't been as, um, as rigid with the application as everyone thought we were, we were going to be. I can tell you, and I, under, I understand that if, if you're not directly engaged in it uh, at the moment, uh, but I can tell you that what we have seen is the kind of improvement that we hope to see and we believe that that's worth paying attention to, encouraging, uh, making sure that institutions are continuing to do that. And so 
Uh, I think what you've seen in the last year is a third of our uh, Division One institutions have had at least one team that has received um, an academic uh, performance sanction. But you've also seen a number of institutions that we've been able to identify uh, and programs in, in those institutions where we've been able to identify progress, where we have seen improvement plans put in place, where they have established benchmarks for the future, uh, and where there um, uh, will be uh, conditions, where there are conditions that in fact will have to be met uh, in the future. Uh, I am more encouraged uh, about where we are with academic reform than I've ever been in, in, in my tenure at the NCAA. Uh, I believe that, that when we went into this process and you saw the seriousness of both the standards and the sanctions that would be in place, um, I think there was some sense that at long last, you know, there would be a, uh, some degree of revenge. Uh, there would be an academic pound of flesh uh, to be had. That, that was never the goal of the NCAA. The goal was to change behavior and to see an improvement in academic performance, and I can tell you that, that we are seeing that. We're seeing it across the board. Um, we're seeing it in some sports more than we are in others, but we're seeing it across the board, and, and that's a very good thing. I'll, uh, uh, I'll leave it to the other panelists to talk about some of the detail, and then we can follow up with questions. Thank you, Wally. Todd, you're going to go next. Oh. <coughs> Thanks. <coughs> Excuse me. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you all this morning. Um, I want to briefly, you have some information uh, in your packets, I believe, about what we've seen in the fourth year of APR data, and I want to briefly go over some of the highlights uh, that are in the data uh, that we've collected this year. Um, the APR rate was sort of always designed from the beginning to, to be a four-year rolling average uh, of, of uh, measuring academic success year by year. And so this is the first year we actually have the full four years' worth of data. Uh, we had a squad size adjustment in place for many for actually for all teams up until this year. That went away. Uh, for the first time this year. So um, we think we've, we've seen some interesting things in these data, and again, this is the first time we've really had the full complement of data that we had hoped to have from the beginning. Um, as Wally indicated, there's been a lot of gratifying news uh, coming out of the, the fourth year of APR. We are overall in most places seeing academic improvement among the student athlete population that we that we serve. We we've focused on uh over the first three or four years the sports of uh, men's basketball, football and baseball. Uh, certainly most of the data you have focus on those particular sports because historically uh, in looking at graduation rates, they've had the lowest graduation rates of our sport groups. And uh, initially in the APR work, they had the lowest APR and were therefore at the most risk of the penalties. They had more teams below 925 and 900 than, than the other sports. So we, we focused on those sports a little bit. <clears throat> um, and what we see in the data overall is, again, the APRs have increased. Uh, for instance, in the sport of, of baseball, the, from the three-year APR last year to the four-year APR this year went up about three points uh, from 935 to 938. Uh, football also went up three points from 931 to 934. Uh, basketball in that aggregate rate, we didn't see any changes. 
Um, but the aggregate rates, taking the three-year average and the four-year average, kind of mask what we see in the year-to-year -year trends, and I think those uh, actually are a better highlight of, of what's been going on. Um, when we look at the number of teams subject to penalties, and again, there's, there's two levels of penalties within the APR program. There's the immediate or contemporaneous penalties that uh, could occur, and the, the cutoff point, uh, as Wally mentioned, for those is a 925, um, and those are just those are sort of warning penalties, if you will. Uh, the more significant historical penalties could occur at an institution or to a team that finds itself below 900 on the APR, and so those are the, the benchmarks that we that we talk about. Um, and as you see in your data, actually, the number of teams that were subject to penalties in these three sports uh, dropped from the three-year data to the four-year data. There were 12 fewer uh, teams in the sport of football below the 925 mark, 11 fewer teams in baseball, uh, and five fewer teams in basketball that would have been subject to these immediate penalties. Uh, in terms of the 900, similarly, uh, especially in football and baseball, there were about uh, uh, nine and 11 teams uh, fewer this year, again, that were subject, could have been subject to penalties. In terms of basketball, it was only two fewer. And, and what we've seen is the, the increases have been more significant, the APR increases have been more significant in football and in baseball than we've seen in basketball, although, as Wally mentioned, in this most recent year, we've seen positive move uh, in the sport of basketball as well. The APR rate is made up of really two components. Eligibility, that is maintaining your, your uh, academic eligibility to compete in athletics over on a term-by-term -term basis, and retention, <coughs> excuse me, that is staying at, at that institution, staying enrolled at that institution. And so we wanted to uh, take a look at what's been happening with those specific components uh, of the APR rate. And what we saw this last year actually was a very significant increase across the board in the eligibility rates of our uh, athletics teams. And that all in all, we, we saw large jumps uh, in these eligibility rates. Um, for instance, as you, you have in your data, in the sport of baseball over the last four years, uh, there's been an about an 11-point increase in the eligibility rate. Uh, in the sport of football, there was a 10-point increase over that time. That's a pretty significant movement. Uh, in basketball, the, the move was 13 or 14 points positively in, in eligibility. Um, there are differences, though, with, within those groups, even though, in, uh, for instance, in football, even though there have been significant changes, they still lag behind all other sports in eligibility. Uh, and there is a football academic working group, actually, that's been established by the association, and that's been a real focus for them. Why is it that football has these lower eligibility rates than other sports? Uh, they, the student-athletes are not less well-prepared, say, than the sport of basketball, but in terms of eligibility, they do lag behind. And those are the kinds of issues that, that uh, we've been looking at in these. Uh, there's been an academic group set up for all three of these sports, baseball, basketball, and football, to look at these sort of individual differences, and Coach Hewitt will talk, who serves on the basketball panel, will talk in some more specifics, I think, about, about the work of that group. When we look at the retention... By the way, this is just this tab, I saw somebody flipping around, this was behind tab four, the data he keeps referring to. Okay, thanks. Uh, in terms of retention in, in the sports of 
football and baseball, again, we've seen positive movement over the course of the four years of data that we have in terms of that uh, number as well, about 11 points up in baseball, uh, uh, seven or eight points up in football. This is where we see a significant difference in the sport of men's basketball. Retention, the retention rate, which started lower in basketball than in other sports, has actually dropped over the course of the four years by about 10 points. And that's obviously a focus for the basketball academic enhancement group. Uh, as they move forward, uh, the issue of retention is one that we've talked about at, at some length and in some detail. Um, one of the things that we've tracked significantly since the beginning of this program is, is what's been come to be called an 0 for 2 student athlete in the, in the APR vernacular. This is a, a person who loses both the eligibility and the retention point in a given term. So essentially, they drop out academically ineligible or their academic failures. Obviously, this is an important group to minimize as we move through this system because even if a person transfers, to be able to transfer in good academic standing uh, obviously is, is a good thing for both for the institution but more importantly for the student athlete themselves. So we try to minimize the number of 0 for 2s. Uh, in, in terms of eligibility, one change that's already been made by the association is it, it used to be that your academic status, if you transferred from one institution to another, your academic status didn't matter uh, at the old, from the old institution in terms of what happened to you at the new institution. Uh, we've just implemented a policy that says that to receive athletic aid at the second institution, you must have been eligible had you stayed at the first institution. And we think that has had some impact on those increasing eligibility rates that we already see. And again, trying to minimize these 0 for 2s. Uh, and we've seen that number drop by about 2% in the sport of baseball from about 6% in the first year to 4% in the most recent year. Basketball also had about a 2% drop over this time. Uh, and football had a 1.5% drop. And that's a significant number of student athletes now who significantly fewer who end up as academic casualties in this system. Uh, another piece of this has been the issue of, of trying to incentivize institutions to bring student athletes back to their campuses who hadn't graduated. And, um, and if you do so, an institution receives a, a bonus point for that graduation in the APR. And, and again, is the idea being to incentivize that behavior. And there's been over 4,000 student athletes who have received that point across Division I in the four years that uh, since APR has been implemented. And uh, that number essentially doubled uh, from, the, from the first couple of years to the second two years that we have. Uh, data for, and we think that a lot of that doubling is really attributable to the fact that this, this bonus point is in place and that campuses are paying attention to and providing resources now to try to get student athletes back and get them through and get their degree even if they didn't finish uh, when they initially enrolled. Uh, finally, I want to talk a little bit about the number of penalties that we saw this year. Again, um, teams below 925 and, and or 900 are subject to these penalties. There's two level of penalties. Um, this last year, there were about there were 149 teams who received an immediate or contemporaneous penalty. Uh, these are the teams below 925. If they then lose athletes as 0 for twos, uh, they are subject to losing the scholarships that they would that that uh, that would have been given to those 0 for two student athletes. And so there were a total of 179, or, sorry, 149 teams that received that contemporaneous penalty. 
uh, when we move to the historical penalties, there are a level of uh, each year that you're in the historical penalty uh, uh, system, the penalties increase. And so, so we, there are different occasions of penalties. There are occasion one penalties, occasion two penalties, occasion three penalties, um, and that's year by year as you as you stay below 900. So the longer you stay down, the, 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 the stiffer the penalties you face. Um, this is the second year of the occasion of the historical penalties. This year, there were 79 teams that we found in occasion one, and some of these also received uh, contemporaneous or immediate penalties. 79 teams. The occasion one penalty is a public warning, is a reprimand saying uh, if you stay at the level that you're at, you could receive uh, further significant penalties moving forward. This was the first year that occasion two penalties were possible. This now, or for those teams that were in the occasion one uh, group last year, and I think there were about 49 of those teams, 26 stayed below 900, didn't show improvement, and now find themselves facing these occasion two penalties. These are penalties that may be restrictions in practice time, further restrictions in scholarship beyond what, what may be in the case in the immediate penalties, uh, and, and uh, certain restrictions on or, or uh, the practice time has to be replaced with academic sorts of time. So there's, there's specific uh, ways that they have to deal with the time that, that they lose in terms of practice. Those 26 teams then would be the teams that may be subject to the third occasion of penalties next year. Uh, and that would be the loss of the ability to go to the, the postseason uh, championship competition. Um, overall, we had 218 teams penalized from 123 institutions. Um, most of those were in the sports of men's basketball, football, and to an extent baseball. You see the numbers about 17% of all men's basketball teams received some sort of penalty, 16% of football teams, and 12% of baseball teams. Uh, and we saw this distributed in a pretty representative way across our subdivisions, the football bowl subdivision, championship subdivision, and the non-football uh, non subdivision. I think I'll leave it there at that point, and I think Bill will talk a bit about the penalty waivers and, and the ways teams that may, but may be below those benchmarks do not receive penalties. Thank you, Todd, and good morning, everyone. As Todd said, there are several ways for an institution not to receive a community academic performance related penalty. One way is through policy exceptions that the, that the committee has put in place. Low, low resource institutions, uh, for those teams below 900, those institutions that meet the improvement plus model, which means they demonstrated improvement towards 925 and either low resource, outperforming the student body, or are not in the bottom 10% when compared to their particular sport when comparing APR scores. I'm not going to focus as much on the policy exceptions as I am on the waivers right now. We received waivers from a number of institutions. Really, the waivers were decided by the staff and the subcommittee, the appeals subcommittee, based on really three pillars, the first of which was academic improvement. What we looked for was there improvement in retention, eligibility over the, or the overall APR score. Are we seeing improved in performance, even though this team may be below 925 or 900? We're also looking for improved academic characteristics of the team. Are we seeing a better profile of a student athlete entering the institution? Are we seeing improved academic performance term by term, not only with retention and eligibility, but how many credit hours are they earning? 
is the term GPA for that team improving over time? Are the freshmen starting to outperform what they had done historically? We would go to that depth and that level of analysis when we review these waivers and would certainly ask the institutions, one, show us the profile of the entering freshmen. Show us the profile of the entering junior college student athletes or entering your institution. And let us compare that to previous years. Show us the number of special admits. Is that changing? Show us the difference in academic performance on a term-by-term -term basis when we compare this year to prior years. So we're certainly looking for improved academic characteristics as well as improved APR metrics. Eligibility retention, although sometimes it may take a little bit longer for the APR to improve as we're starting to change the population of those student athletes, in particular football, much larger cohorts, and you're only bringing sometimes 20 to 22 in at a time for a team that could have 85. Next, the committee and the staff reviewed the APR improvement plans for member institutions. Every waiver that was submitted had to have an APR improvement plan for that particular team. Our staff worked with every institution to ensure that every APR improvement plan that was submitted was deemed to be at least acceptable. That means it had meaningful strategies that, if implemented, would lead to improved academic performance for that team. That was an important component, and that was a major emphasis for the staff to reach out to member institutions. This program is not about penalizing teams. There are penalties for those who continue not to improve who continue not to take this program seriously. However, for those programs that have demonstrated a commitment to the improved academic performance of their student athletes through their APR improvement plan, we certainly want to provide them the opportunity to do so. So what we do is we would work with member institutions on a one-on-one -on -one basis, reviewing their plan, reviewing their data, working with their campus to ensure that their plan that they have submitted is a meaningful plan and has the ability to improve the academic performance for that individual campus. Recognizing that every campus has its own individual needs, struggles, uh, issues that it encounters, knowing that each one of these plans has to be specialized. That was another very important component to our waiver analysis. Finally, we looked at mitigating circumstances. But to be quite honest with you, mitigating circumstances had little to no effect on most of the waiver decisions. To be quite honest, there's not many mitigating circumstances that affect a four-year APR rate. We really are looking at why is your number where it is. We don't want to talk about the one or two student athletes that had they returned or had they earned the eligibility point, we'd be above 900, 925. Let's talk about all the students that brought you below 900, 925. And we call that a real top-down approach. There's not many mitigating circumstances, excuse me, there's not a lot of mitigating circumstances that really affect a team's four-year rate. We have seen some natural disasters. Unfortunately, Hurricane Katrina had an effect. It still has a residual effect with a number of our institutions in certain geographical regions. The other issue that the committee struggles with and the staff continues to review is the effect of coaching change. That is unique to sports, in particular men's basketball. The effect of coaching change seems to have a larger effect and has more impact in the sport of men's basketball. However, we are certainly looking, when we see coaching change, to see a correlation between a drop in retention with the coaching change. However, we still expect student athletes to earn the eligibility point. A coaching change has not been an acceptable reason for student athletes not to earn the eligibility point. That is still within control of the student athlete even when they're leaving. 
However, we do hear from a number of our coaching staffs and the committee continues to evaluate the overall effect of coaching change on retention and eligibility. When we generally gave approvals uh, or even partial approvals of any of the penalties, we provided conditional relief. That relief was conditioned on two elements. The team and the institution implementing its APR improvement plan. Secondly, that team achieving a goal. Every APR improvement plan had an APR goal for that team. So when the institutions were submitting their 07-08 data, they're expected to achieve a minimum overall APR, eligibility, and retention rate. If the team fails to meet those conditions, the penalty is reinstated. And if you're in the historical penalty phase, you can move on to the next phase of historical penalties. So if we conditionally approved occasion one historical penalties, and institution failed to meet any one of its goals, that team now moves on to occasion two historical penalties the next fall. Feel the conditional is a powerful tool. What it does is really shifts the burden back to the institution. It says, institution, you have demonstrated academic improvement and a commitment to academic improvement. However, your work is not done. And what we expect is you to implement this plan and continue to move forward and continue to progress towards 925 or higher. If you do that, we'll continue to provide you relief. You're moving in the right direction. We don't want to penalize everybody. We certainly want people to improve. We want every team above 925. We want all of our teams graduating their student athletes. If you continue to do that, you continue to make progress and you continue to move forward, we'll continue to provide relief. However, if you fail to implement your plan, you fail to achieve your goals, that's when you will get a penalty. That's when you've demonstrated that you are not committed to the academic improvement for that particular team. So that's why we feel conditional relief is really the relief that is provided. What it does provide is the opportunity for institutions to demonstrate their improvement. However, failure to demonstrate improvement allows us to reinstitute the penalties that were conditionally waived originally. I do want to spend another minute talking about APR data reviews or data audits. Uh, I know this group uh, previously had talked about, raised some concerns about the integrity of the, the APR data. I'll let you know we're entering our third year of data reviews. First year we started with about, I think, 12 schools. We're now, uh, we then moved up to 15 or 20, and now we're going to go closer to 30 institutions. On an annual basis, we're doing a comprehensive review of all the APR data submitted by every institution. What we review is every decision that is entered into the data collection system. We review all the eligibility forms, retention records, transcripts, documentation if they say student-athlete met an exception or legislative exclusion. We're asking for documentation for everything. What we have found generally is two things. One, institutions, although not originally happy when we tell them that they have been selected for a data review, at the end feel it was a very worthwhile process. So they have learned a lot. They have better systems in place, have a better understanding of how to report their APR data. Secondly, and most importantly, what we have found is there are errors. There's literally hundreds or thousands of student athletes, and there's thousands of decisions. There are human errors. There's typographical errors, and we're correcting those. But what we have not found is that anyone looks like they're willfully trying to be deceitful. I think we've seen when there are errors, they're just 
a lack of knowledge of the program. And to be quite honest, a number of institutions have been overly punitive on themselves. They have lost more points than they should have. So we're helping institutions manage the rate better. And we're especially focusing on our low-resource institutions in this matter, trying to ensure that they understand the program, understand all the opportunities the program avails itself of, and continue to work with our low-resource institutions in that vein. At that, I will stop and turn it over to Paul to Thank you. Um, first, I'd like to thank Amy Parko for inviting me to meet with you all today. Um, you made one mistake, Amy. You asked me to speak for five to eight minutes. I, asked, I didn't tell you I have three daughters, okay? I got a, a ninth grader, a seventh grader, and a, and a fourth grader. And the fourth grader is the only one that gives me any any conversation. The other two are convinced I know nothing. So uh, you're going to have to indulge me this morning as I uh, get some things off my chest here. Um, I do, uh, again, I do appreciate the opportunity to, to come before you. Uh, I may have a little bit of a different view from a coach's perspective on, on what we're trying to accomplish each and every day as college basketball coaches. Uh, uh, I, I think the academic reform package overall, which the APR is a part of, is, has brought some very positive developments. I think, number one, when I look at the, uh, the increase of core classes that are required for high school students to achieve initial eligibility, I think that's a very, very positive development. Um, I think the strong encouragement, I think probably eventual requirement that we fully fund summer school opportunities in men's college basketball will, uh, will certainly help us to achieve our, our goal of graduating student athletes. Another part of the, uh, <clears throat> the academic reform package that I applaud is the, the emphasis on standardized test scores, something that uh, many educators argued for uh, 20 years ago when we impl implemented Proposition 48. Our requirements of, of college campus compliance officers to meet with prospects and attending summer campus to educate them about the uh, changing standards of the NCAA for, for eligibility. I also appreciate the, the greater public awareness that has been placed on graduation rates and, and the numbers. Um, the academic improvement plans that Bill talked about I think are outstanding. They mirror a lot of the programs that we see that are not involved in our athletic departments <clears throat> that have helped schools improve their retention as well as graduation numbers. And, and finally, I think uh, the, the moves by President Brand, Miles Brand, to to get the input of coaches, I think, is something that's really helped to uh, to to make some positive developments when you talk about the the improvement in terms of graduation. Um, some points where I differ, and I, and I, and I say these points as uh, I'll let you know straight out that I am a fan of college basketball. I'm partly a product of college basketball. I played four years at. St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York, on a scholarship at Division II school. So college basketball, along with my parents, had a lot to do with helping me get to where I am in life. And, and I think this game has, has improved the, uh, and provided a lot of opportunities, educational opportunities for many kids. Um, when I hear about the ills of our game, I have to tell you I am puzzled. Um, I was watching a, a, a speech given by Barack Obama last week, and I think he was talking to the, uh, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, and he said, let me, see, let me know when you see this guy, Barack Obama. He sounds pretty scary. And when I hear us talk about the graduation numbers in college basketball, I, I do have some of the same feelings. You know, when you look at the graduation rates of college basketball, you're, you're looking at the good work of academic advisors, administrators, coaches, and most of all, student-athletes that participate in our game. These numbers reflect a sport that spans two semesters, offers more, offers more professional opportunities than all, with maybe the exception of baseball, minus strict rules that monitor involvement with agents in recruiting of college players. Instability 
that is caused by constant turning over coaches and due to a lack of trust, limits on the amount of contact coaches can have with their student-athletes. I've read with great interest the reports that this committee has degenerated since 1990. And again, I have to tell you, I, I'm somewhat confused that a group of well-educated, professionally mobile people could come up with incomplete conclusions that have produced <clears throat> on what has produced, what, I'm sorry, incomplete conclusions that you have produced on how to improve and change the behavior of the men's college basketball community or the men's basketball community at large. One of the answers has been to raise, raise standards. Another has been to support speeding up of, of progress of students towards degree, essentially turning education into a race. If the standards have not, if the race standards or the progress towards degree numbers have not been met, the response seems to have been to blame the coach. The truth is men's college basketball is performing at a very respectable level. African American students make up 65% of the participants in men's Division I men's basketball. With graduation being one of the goals we all can agree on, let's take a closer look at the graduation numbers in college basketball. According to Richard Lapchick, African American males graduated much, at a much higher rate, 53%, than the African American males who are non-student non athletes, 37%. This quote comes from Miles Brand. While it is true that basketball players overall are doing better than the general population, the reasons for low graduation rates of African American males in the general student body are likely affecting the low graduation rates of African-American male basketball players. It will be very difficult to totally resolve the problems with graduation rates of African-American basketball players without addressing the broader issues. Your group is not the only group that offers solutions after taking a flyover view of the supposed carnage that is college basketball. The media often engages in announcing college basketball without recognizing the broader issues. Again, Richard Lapchak, who is the chair of the DeVos Sports Business Management Program, University of Central Florida. The graduation rate of African male students as a whole is only 37% versus the overall rate of 61% for white students, which is a scandalous 24% gap. Too many of our predominantly white campuses are not welcome in places for students of color, whether they are athletes or not. Further inspection of data I received from the NCAA shows from 1985 to 2000, 11 times graduation rates of African-American basketball players moved in sync with the graduation rates of the African-American student bodies. That is to say, on 11 occasions between 85 and 2000, when the overall African-American graduation rate went up, so did the graduation rate of the athletes. And when it went down, accordingly it went down. While I would like to see everyone who enters college earn a meaningful degree, we need to find more effective ways to reach our goals. Numbers do not relate nor inspire students to strive for higher academic achievement. From my background as a college admissions counselor at the State University of New York campus at Old Westbury, as well as an academic advisor at that same institution, I recognize mentoring, inclusion of ideas, and most of all, trust of coaches is necessary to move the needle. Programs like the Peer Mentoring Program and Parent Advisory Group at the University of Virginia has produced the highest African-American graduation rate for a state chartered institution in the country over the last 15 years. At the Ohio State University just four years ago, they faced a retention rate of below 30% for African-American male students. By implementing programs through the Todd Bell Center that included mentoring, early moving programs, speakers, and, and retreats, they have now produced a, a retention rate of over 90%. Finally, at my institution, Georgia Tech, in 1992, the Institute made a concerted effort 
to recruit, mentor, and career place engineering students of color at all levels. Since 1994, Georgia Tech has produced more engineers of color than any school in the country. 10% of all engineering <clears throat> PhDs in the United States have been produced by Georgia Tech. College basketball coaches are looking for guidance on the best practices available to help us manage what is easily the most unique situation in all of sports, all of college sports. Programs like the first team program offered by the NCAA, the Play It Smart program offered by the National Football Foundation, engage young student athletes, impress upon them that pro sports is not the only means of reaching financial success. I believe the answer will be found in a collective effort, not a fragmented one. I'd like to close with this quote. Miles Brand has given us access to himself and his staff. It is phenomenal. We, are, we were in a period 11 or 12 years ago, and just a couple of years ago, where no one listened. To, listened. Now they are listening. That quote comes from Mike Krzyzewski, Duke coach, uh, Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, that quote, quote was given four years ago. I look forward to questions. Um, I look forward to, to meaningful dia dialogue on how do we best serve our student-athletes. Let me thank uh, all four, four of you very much for your, your comments, and uh, let's throw the floor open to uh, discussion, questions, comments from the Commission. A factual question. Uh, I'm looking at the material which we, we were which we were presented with regard to the APR, um, and uh, it, it it says that um, of those teams penalized, approximately 17 percent are men's basketball teams, and 16 percent are football teams, and 12 percent are baseball teams. Now you said something different from that, at least if I heard you. You said that 16% of the 16% of the uh, basketball teams were penalized, which was a very different uh, outcome. Can you tell me which of those is correct? That's this document that I'm looking at, which is in the folder. Huh? The um. The number within the sport is correct. I, I haven't done, I don't know the number uh, as it relates, the number that you just provided. I can look that up if you give me a moment. No, I, um, they're very different. But, but the, the 17 they're the, same, they're the same figures, but they are, they, they indicate that they're a percentage of a different, of, of a different number. Yeah. Um, and what I said indicates that there are many more uh, basketball teams, for instance, that have been penalized and would be the case if you look at it the way it is presented to us in this document. 17% of all Division I men's basketball teams received a penalty. 16% of the football and 12 of the baseball. That Thank is correct. You. I have a, a, a question um, about the, uh, the 925 and what it um, what what it correlates to I, I, I recall uh, I was on the the uh, Division One Board of Directors when we sort of announced in principle to move forward with the academic uh, pro, um, program um, and 
the the intent at the time was that the uh, APR score should be correlated to a 50% graduation rate as a sort of starting point. That was the underlying philosophy. Now, a lot of work has gone on uh, in, in developing these numbers, et cetera, and a lot of data has been uh, collected. And I, I, I wonder where we stand on that particular point. Is does the 925 in, in some way correlate to a 50% a graduation rate, or is that a difficult thing to measure? What, where does that stand? Yeah, um, we continue to look at that. And it is a, a moving target to a certain extent. We're, we're looking at historical graduation rates versus APR rates of current student-athletes. That'll become a much more stable figure as we get the same students moving through the program, but obviously we don't have graduation rates yet. But um, Having said that, uh, doing, doing the math most recently, uh, the 925, and, and we're moving to a, a graduation success rate metric, comparing right. APR to the grad success right. rate. The 925 was benchmarked early on at a 60% actually grad success rate. Uh -huh. And it, it's maintained about that. I think it's now 58 or 59 would be the, our projection. The 900, uh, I think was tied to about a 50% GSR initially. I think that number is between, maintains between 45 and 50%. So a 900 would equate to about a 45 or 50% grad success rate. Does that make? It, it, it does. It, does the principle uh, of tying the, the um, APR scores to specific graduation success rates, it, does that, is that maintained? Is that still part of the philosophy of the program? Uh, if, yeah, certainly the Committee on Academic Performance that oversees this talks about that regularly. And, and Wally, I don't know if you were... Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think that is still very much a, a part of the, of the overall discussion. And I think over time, There'll be discussion about whether those uh, whether those benchmarks need an adjustment because of because of the results that we're that we're seeing. We're, we haven't got the class through yet. We don't right. know exactly what we're going to uh, to see. Um, there's no question that the graduation success rate is a far more honest evaluation of of what's happening. And um, and you've heard Miles talk about that before. We wish that that existed for the rest of higher education so we could compare apples to apples. Um, but clearly what we've done is we've simply made the move. And, and I think if you, watch, if you watch the media, the media has made the move as well. They really don't talk very much anymore about the federal grad rate. They're, they're looking at the graduation success rate, and I think that's the right way to go. Yeah. But, but, the, but APR is still very much um, uh, connected in, in philosophically with what we're trying to achieve in terms of the graduation success rate. For my colleagues on, on the commission who don't follow these technical uh, terms uh, who aren't in, uh, directly in higher education, the gra federal graduation rate measures the freshmen entering an in a given institution and graduating from that institution. Uh, the NCAA is using a more sophisticated and I think a better measure of, of academic success. If a student transfers and graduates from another institution, then uh, that is counted in, uh, as a graduation success rate uh, plus in, in that score, whereas it would not be counted with the federal rate. So, uh, you know, I think using the graduation success rate is a, is a, is a, is a, is a good step, but you know, I, I'm, I'm pleased. I think I hear hear you saying that 
the a philosophical 60%, 50% is what's driving uh, the program, not some score that isn't tied to uh, any particular measure of academic success. I mean, the 925 is a way of measuring what the ultimate uh, uh, goal is. And, and, and I, I hear you saying that that principle uh, still holds within this program. That's, that's exactly right. And, and again, I think that the, you know, you have to keep in mind that the underlying philosophy of all this is to see improvement, to change behaviors. Uh, so long as we do that, we believe that we're on the on the right track, and 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 we're generally seeing that. We have one or two areas where um, where I think there's cause for real concern. Retention, for example, in men's basketball uh, is an area that uh, deserves some special attention. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, I think that across the board, you're seeing that kind of improvement. Cliff. Uh, yes, I, um, I'd like to uh, get a point of information. Um, uh, before I do that, I want to um, at least uh, make a preliminary comment on uh, Mr. Hewitt's uh, peroration about the fact that um, one must judge uh, the effectiveness of the graduation rates, retention rates, et cetera, for the minority or underprivileged uh, student body as a whole at each institution because the student athlete is operating in that particular context. And I've, I've had a great deal of experience and I, I would like to get back to that. But my real preliminary question is why, um, how, I'd like to get a little more insight into uh, the process uh, with regard to how one is judged on the waivers um, it's a staff matter, I understand. Uh, how many staff members are involved in that? Uh, to what extent is there involvement in terms of any committee or infractions or appeal committee with regard to that? Uh, a great deal of this has elements of not the numerical, which is the way the commission began pushing on this because you can get the hard numbers such as they are to deal with. But much of uh, what you deal with in regard to the waivers, I find, has a significant component of the judgmental, uh, not the hard data. Uh, you have a, uh, an institution comes forward with a, uh, they are moving in the right direction. Is that a 5% move, a 10% move? What, what, I'd like to get a little better sense of how those judgments are made. Um, you say, well, uh, there have been uh, mitigating circumstances. All right, well, if there are mitigating circumstances that you alluded to with regard to the high instability of coaching in basketball, uh, to what extent is the high turnover rate and instability of coaching in basketball and its impact upon retention much more a function of the size of the team compared to football? Or is there something unique about basketball? I, there's a whole judgmental component in here, which I'm not being critical. I just want to understand how, how that works. And, and lastly, um, as part of also this question about process, um, how um, when an institution 
makes its plan and its submission. And uh, you still end up with a certain level of either penalty or sanctions. Um, is there an appeal process? Is there any, uh, in, the, <laughs> in the other areas of the NCAA, you have an appeal process? I'm just curious what it's, I mean, I realize that all of this is quite new, relatively new for the NCAA and for us, but I'm, I'm curious as to how it's working. Uh, and maybe, uh, and you might be able to answer it better than any other thought. Yeah. Let me describe the process first. Institution has the opportunity once it submits its data to correct its data. It then moves to what is known as the adjustment phase, which it will request adjustments for points it may lose that it considers to be outside the control of the student athlete, the institution, the team. That's where we see adjustments for pro departures or student athletes who leave due to a medical situation with an immediate family member themselves. After we go through the adjustments, we now have a final score. The institution now submits its waiver request if it does have a penalty. That waiver request, at least for contemporaneous penalties or immediate penalties, occasion one and occasion two, go to the staff first. There is probably a team of about 12 to 15 staff members that we assign the waivers to. Uh, we do convene as a group to discuss those waivers. Um, we work with the institution to develop what we think is probably the institution's best argument. Generally what we're looking for is documentation to substantiate the assertions the institution's making at its waiver. It says it's improved the profile of its student athletes. We're looking to see that it has done those types of things. Once we have that, the staff then makes an initial decision, at least for the occasion two, occasion one, and the immediate contemporaneous penalties. Uh, those decisions, if they're an approval or a conditional approval, are reviewed monthly by the Appeals Subcommittee of the Committee on Academic Performance. So they have the opportunity to review the decisions the staff makes to let us know have we deviated from what they would consider to be an acceptable decision. We would not go back and take a decision from an institution. What's the, what's the membership of that committee? Uh, the membership on that particular committee is a provost, uh, a FAR, uh, and we have a commissioner, and we also have a uh, athletic administrator on that particular committee. Okay. Uh, they comprise a subcommittee of the committee on academic performance. For those cases in which the institution says no, one, we disagree with the staff decision, denial, partial approval, even conditions, they have the opportunity to appeal that decision. That appeal goes to that particular subcommittee. For immediate penalties, and for occasion one historical penalties. Those penalties are just a paper appeal only for the institution. However, when we move to occasion two, because of the significance of occasion two penalties, we are now talking about practice restrictions, more significant financial aid restrictions. Uh, in addition, this team, this team is now one step removed from postseason ineligibility. The institution has an opportunity for a teleconference on that teleconference from the institution will be the institution's president, faculty athletic representative, the athletic director, and the coach for that particular team. We're also seeing that it generally will be the academic advisor or, or individual who oversees the academic area for that particular institution's athletic department. On behalf of the institution, generally we've seen two individuals speak on their behalf, the president 
and or the athletic director. So at that point, the subcommittee makes the final decision, both the staff who made the decision as well as the institution get off the line. There is just one staff member who has not been involved with the institution's case. It remains on the line to support the work of the subcommittee in case it has questions about process. They then make it a final decision. That decision is not appealable. As we move now to occasion three and four, those decisions will go, rather those appeals and even initial hearings will go to the full committee for an in-person hearing. Do the significance of the penalty, when we're talking about postseason competition as well as potential membership loss, the institution will actually have to come to an in-person hearing with the full committee, uh, argue their case, and that committee will make the ultimate decision. That decision is appealable to the board of directors, which would actually be a subcommittee of the board of directors at this point. There are still some procedural issues that are being worked out and will be discussed at the July CAP meeting. Now to go back and talk about what is improvement. Uh, it's difficult to quantify. Um, what we're looking for though is their actual change from year to year. Uh, this is where we have to appreciate the differences in institutions. Our low resource institutions, it takes longer. It's more subtle. Uh, that's why we actually go and look down to is the GPA or the credit hours, is it generally improving? for those student athletes when compared to previous years. There is no magic number how much does it have to improve. Uh, I will tell you for occasion two historical penalties, we, no one received full relief, only partial relief. And if they received partial relief, it was because they had actually improved some component of their APR score. There were several institutions who made no improvement and got no relief. Or if they made improvement, it was very subtle it was very late. They may have changed, they say, in the fall of 07 term. That generally was not enough. You've had four, at least three years to make some type of other change. Those are the things we're looking for. So I can't say it, we're quantifying by it's got to be a 5% change, a 6%, a 3%. We do look at it based on the context of the institution's particular situation, try to work with the institution, try to see the plans that they had in place. Have they implemented those plans? What type of resources do they have? Are they committed to continued improvement is really what we're looking for also. Does the plan that they submit, does it look like if implemented will continue to allow them to improve? Uh, we continue to look for goals that continue to push that institution's team towards 925 or higher. I will tell you we had one institution that submitted an APR goal for this year of 850. Not much of a goal. Uh, so it seemed to be more of a projection of what we think we're going to be at on the low end. Well, the committee, when it reviewed that, said, you know what, that works to the institution's disadvantage. We are n that shows us the lack of faith and commitment this institution has towards actual improvement. That was a basis for denial for that particular waiver. Uh, is that always the case? No, we certainly have to base it on the realities. Talk about mitigation. To be quite honest with you, mitigation had probably almost no effect in almost any waiver decision. We did look at coaching change. Uh, it is something the committee is beginning to look at in more depth, trying to understand what is the magnitude of coaching change. Uh, coaching change results in a lot of things that happen, lost retention points, lost eligibility points. Is it magnified in basketball? It is because of a smaller cohort. You lose four, it's a much bigger difference in basketball than it is if you lost 15 in football. Um, 
but part of the APR improvement plan for those institutions is what are you doing to ensure that this doesn't repeat itself if you have another coaching change? We understand there's an effect, but it can't always be an effect. At some point, you can't say, I've had a coaching change, I had a coaching change, I had a coaching change, and we're never at 900, we're never at 925. What are you doing to help ensure that student athletes are staying even through coaching change? Is it the type of students you're bringing in? Bill, yeah. uh, how many requests for waivers were there and what percent were uh, granted? I believe we had about 112 and I would say, I don't know, maybe about half of those roughly were granted. And majority of those were granted were conditionally granted. I see. Okay. I think Anita had a question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I have first, what uh, what is a low resource institution? I have a feeling that's code for something I don't know. So uh, I, I can't like disclose that. Can't disclose no. that. Uh, low resource institution. The committee uses three measurements, and I'm going to ask Todd to help. What we do is look at the per capita expense for the institution per student, per student athlete, and number of Pell recipients. That is examined every year. Once we have those numbers, what we look at are the bottom 10% in rank order for institutions. So these are institutions that have the lowest numbers. The bottom 10% in any given year are considered our lowest resource institutions. For the student body as a whole or the student For both. Student body, student athlete, and number of Pell recipients overall. So it has to do with the resources of the student athletes then? has to do with the expenditures the institution has or makes when you're looking at what is the institution's expenditure per student, per student athlete, and as well as the number of Pell recipients at that particular institution. We know that those institutions that put more resources at academic support tend to do better with academic performance. Those that either don't, which is one group, but but those that simply don't have those resources to do so, um, are, are those the, t the bottom 10% of those that have, that have fallen into this policy exemption category? Lynn and then Andrea. I had another. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, the other part, uh, a lot of this is reputational, I guess. That the eventually, it gets to the point where people know what schools are really not doing what they ought to be doing. Um, I wondered how much. A, 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 effort is made on actually talking with the students who are at these schools and their, the effects on them of having a, I don't know what it is, the coaching change and other things that really affect their ability to graduate. That is something that has come up through the Basketball Academic Enhancement Group. Uh, I, I sit with Paul on our transfer group and, and one of the recommendations is that we actually reach out to those student populations and have focus groups that talk to those current as well as former student athletes who are, say, junior college transfers. What happened if they weren't academically successful? What didn't happen? What worked? What didn't work? To get a better understanding of what's going on uh, at that more local level. So as we begin to look for recommendations that they're meaningful recommendations. So there is some discussion even at that level that there needs to be an understanding at a more local level. Uh, but as far as when we look at penalty waivers, uh, we, there's no conversations as of now with individual student athletes. Lynn? 
um, let me go back to the, uh, the eligibility uh, the measurements and, and the jumps in eligibility. Have you guys been able to figure out uh, what specific changes that you can attribute those jumps to? Is it better preparation? Is it more conscientiousness? Uh, coursework changes? Because I think it's important to understand what's behind the uh, the increase. Uh, at, at this point, I don't have a, a great answer for you. It's hard to parcel that out. I mean, what, what we have so far is really anecdotal besides seeing that there has been a change. Um, I think that uh, a couple things that we've talked to folks about that I think have made a difference. One is this, the, this issue, this rule change that was made that said that if you do transfer, do leave the institution to be eligible at the next, or to be able to receive financial aid at the next institution, you have to have been eligible at the first institution. I think that's agreed that that has had a positive impact on the eligibility numbers. I, I can't tell you at today specifically of the 10-point jump, is that worth five or four or six points? I'm not sure. I think the other thing that uh, we've noted and has been talked about is, is institutions without doubt are putting more resources. Those that can afford to put more resources toward academic support are doing so. And the people that we talk to on campus believe that has had a, a positive impact on those eligibility numbers. Um, I, I don't know anybody well, else. Lynn, I, I think one of the things that you have to, you know, remember that, that before academic reform, if a student athlete was going to leave, Everybody may very well have just said, "Okay, fine, you're on, you're on your way," um, and they were going to be 0 for twos. Uh, there's a big difference between an 0 for two and an 0 for one. So I think coaches are encouraging student athletes to, you know, finish the semester. If you're if you're going to leave, you're you're going to leave, but finish the semester, stay eligible. And I think we're seeing uh, I think we're seeing more impact uh, from that as well. I think the greatest impact is the fact that if you're going to transfer. You're going to have to be eligible in order to get uh, a scholarship at the, uh, at the other institution. But I think that the impact of coaches has also had a significant change. Uh, Paul may be able to speak to that as well. Well, I was going to ask specifically. I mean, you look at transcript review. Um, you know, what what courses are these uh, student athletes taking? I mean, we talk about meaningful courses, et cetera. So the point I'm getting to is that when you talk about a jump in eligibility, uh, the credibility in the numbers. Uh, I think it is so important, and I'm hopeful that you know you'll be able to drill down and, and find out exactly what specific changes. And I threw out a couple of them, uh, you know, the preparation, the conscientiousness, uh, obviously coursework change, things of that nature. But you know, you want you want those numbers to be meaningful. I mean, not only remain eligible, certainly the, the retention numbers as well. Len, one of the uh, unintended consequences of APR is that I, I think. Students and coaches, for that matter, are reluctant to put kids in challenging majors, which is something we talked about from the very That's beginning. That's exactly where I'm getting. Uh, you know, we have, and believe me, I, th I think we're on the right road. I, I'm not a dissenter at APR, but, you know, when Kevin came down to the ACC meetings four years ago and, and put this program out in front of us, almost every coach said that you understand what you're basically telling us is you're going to, we're going to encourage our kids to take the easiest path to eligibility. So if I'm at Georgia Tech, I'm not going to tell a young man he can't major in engineering, but I certainly will counsel him before he takes that first class that you understand if you decide to go down this road and for some reason you find it harder than you expected and you decide to change your major, you're probably more than likely going to end up being eligible. 
Um, if I could follow up, Britt, um, the question again goes back to the retention and, and the loss. Uh, how much is, has the pro impact had on that? And, and I'm not saying just guys who opt to, to leave after their freshman year, but how about the guys who think that they can get there after their freshman year and ultimately can't make the grade, I mean, and, and ultimately decide they're going to change schools, maybe they're blaming it on the coach or something like that. We are in college basketball, and, like, this is the wild, wild west. Uh, in, in football, they have a three-year rule. In baseball, they can leave out of high school, or if they don't, if they go to college, they leave three years later. In college basketball, they can leave whenever they want, essentially. And uh, so that creates a situation where, and let me back up a step. Also, you have an environment where the NBA Players Association, in my opinion, has completely abdicated their responsibility and there is not a mechanism in place to center agents who come on your campuses and recruit. Football, it's a much more organized process. Baseball, it's a much more sane process. So we have kids, we talk about changing behavior, we have kids who are listening to people who will basically just tell them whatever they want to hear, this coach isn't playing, he's hurting your chance to be a pro, leave. Um, so that is, that is impact the retention. And we're not just talking about NBA in Europe, Australia, South America, they're pro leagues everywhere. And, and the salary there is pretty good. You can make six figures or above. So in terms of retention, yes, the unstructured nature in which players are brought into the NBA Players Association or being drafted has created a lot of instability for college coaches. I have just one more question. Sure. Um, you know, we talked, of, and Paul, you, you mentioned it, um, obviously the basketball graduation rate among African-American uh, participants versus African-American students overall. I mean, I, I recognize that basketball should not be wagging the dog, so to speak. But in the end, I mean, on both fronts, it's, there's room for improvement. And you, you outlined some of, the, some of the methods, some of the programs that, that have contributed to, to improvement on specific campuses. Uh, my question is, is there room, instead of saying that, you know, we shouldn't look at African-American basketball players and hold them to a higher standard than students overall, which is kind of what I got. Why can't we, you know, expect athletes to be the beacon, so to speak, to be the leaders on campus? I see it on high school. I mean, I have a 17-year-old who was a high school athlete about to go to college right now. Um, you know, and I've seen the impact that he can have on, you know, his fellow students. And on the college level, it's the same thing. How can we... Uh, find a way to use athletes and, and, and hold them to a higher standard, but help them achieve that higher standard. Um, and some of that has to do with the quality of student-athlete that's recruited. Um, some of it also has to do with, you know, how students are, 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 are viewed, student-athletes are viewed on campus. But overall, in that respect, I do believe that there's room where student-athletes can be, the beacons can show the way, as opposed to trying to lump them into uh, another bag that... Um, you know, with the, the idea that we don't have to necessarily set higher expectations. And I was just curious as to the viewpoints of the panelists. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about we, we can and should do better. But I think we also have to recognize why do they do better. In, in looking at the federal graduation rate, I got this from the NCA uh, for gender ethnicity groups in 2000 entering class. The only group that lags behind the student body a white male, the two groups, white male basketball players and white football players. African-American male football players graduate, or I'm sorry, basketball players graduate at a higher rate than the student body. 
football players, women's basketball, okay, for, for white women basketball players, they graduate higher than the student body. For African-American women basketball players. I, I think my point I'm trying to get to here is there is probably something that's being done in the coaching community, in the athletic department, to create programs to make them more comfortable, uh, mentor, tutor, and move them towards graduation. Whereas the majority has always had that support group, if you will, on campus. You follow where I'm going with this? Sure. So, yes, I think we absolutely can do better and we should do better. I don't expect my guys to come to me and say, well, Coach, I'm having trouble keeping up. If I brought you here, I made a decision, along with the admissions department, that you can come here and do the work. But I think we miss the point sometimes when we say, well, men's basketball players, African-American men's basketball players, according to these federal numbers, are graduating 43%, and the, the, the non-basketball players are graduating 39%. And the, the response I always hear is, well, they should graduate more. All the financial burdens are taken out of play. Well, if you look at, again, if you, if you look at white basketball players, why are they 10% behind the student body? All their financial burdens are taken away. Is there something more in play here and maybe it's something the coach does to have more fireside chats, have them over the house to dinner. The Todd Bell Center that I found out about last week at Ohio State is a, is a remarkable, remarkable story. They had less than 30% retention rate of African male students, not athletes, students. Now they're over 90%. Why? What did they do? I called them and said, what did you guys do? Gene Smith, the AD, is involved with this. He has a program called Team Smith where he takes 22 students, not athletes, 22 students who have all the earmarkings of kids that are going to drop out. And he's been doing a program for four years. He told me he hasn't lost a player, a student yet. Not a player, a student. What does he do with the program? It, it ranges from everything from meals over his house to having financial planners coming and talk to the kids about planning the future to time management people. And all of a sudden, why are these kids staying? You follow what I'm saying? I, I agree that we should strive for better, and I, I'm all for that, but I think we also have to be realistic and say we can't just say, hey, here are numbers you have to reach and that's it. Like I said, numbers don't inspire kids. You've got to get down to their level sometimes. George Rapplin, who's my mentor in this business, I'm talking to him. He always says to me, we miss the boat because we don't use our student-athletes to preach the gospel. We don't use the kids who are participating in the NCAA tournament, who are going through graduation to go back. I mean, think about it. Just a few years ago, we weren't allowed to have our student-athletes go out and speak at camps. That's a great summer job to go out and speak at a camp and talk about your experience as an NCAA student-athlete and earn a little money on the side. What's wrong with that? That was my bounce pass to you. You laid it up right. <laughs> <laughs> Andreas? Andreas, could you use the mic, please? Thank you. I had a question about... Um, back to waivers and coaching changes. First of all, I wondered if there are any sort of standard waivers. Second of all, in regards to something like a coaching change or something where a, a student leaves the institution, do, does, do you ever look at what the other institution that is gaining the student is doing? Is there any penalty to the institution that is coming after in recruiting the student because there's been a coaching change or recruiting the student continually trying to recruit the student away from the school. And I wonder if something like that shouldn't be looked at so that there is a, a penalty or some sort of um, um, notice that, that, you know, it takes two to tango in that game. It's usually not just the student deciding they want to leave. It's being given an offer 
that they think is going to put them, take them off the bench more, or they're going to, you know, they don't like the new coach, or they they want to make a switch. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if, if if that's part of the process at all. As far as standard waivers, uh, there are certain policies the committee has that keep teams from being penalized. If the team meets the, if it's below 900. It meets the improvement plus model, which means it's improving towards 925 uh, at a predetermined level, and it is not in the bottom 10%. Uh, it is in the bottom 10% based on resources or is outperforming the student body. One could say those may be standard type waivers. There's no application for those. Additionally, the student athlete who transfers with a 2-6 is eligible. Transfers immediately, those that recently adopted exception will be automatic also. That was just due to sheer volume. Um, that one will be part of the data submission for institution, so that will be another type of automatic um, waiver for an adjustment. However, there are no others, so if institutions looking for relief from a penalty or even an adjustment that is filed, and there's at least a review by the staff, apart from the ones that we've just talked about. Coaching change. Uh, the committee continues to review coaching change, in particular two sports, football and basketball. Um, continues to it's a topic of conversation for the basketball academic enhancement group also, the impact of coaching change. I cannot say that there has been any conversation about a penalty for the teams recruiting those student athletes and certainly as a topic they can be discussed with both of those groups as they continue their work in reviewing this. Jerry, I think you were next, and then Mike. Yes. Um, I had a question for you, Paul. I understood as part of your um, commentary on solutions and ways of helping to make the problem uh, uh, or to resolve the problems that we're having in basketball uh, revolve around trusting the coaches more. And um, I, you know, I would be inclined to want to do that, but I'm a bit troubled and hesitant to do that when I hear a description of the story that you gave. That when the APR was presented, the coach said, um, "Sounds like it was a fairly common view that, uh, well, what this is going to do is we're going to advise our students to take easy courses so that they can be eligible." Uh, what this represents to me is a mentality that says that eligibility is the most important factor for the coach rather than the academic development of the student. Uh, and if that's the perspective of the coach, then I would expect the coaches to engage in behaviors that maximize eligibility and put the, the student's advancement in academics second place. Um, it's difficult for me to then see the coaches as part of a solution rather than part of the problem when that seems to be the orientation. So uh, how do you resolve this conflict in, in your mind? And you know, how, how can you help me want to trust the coaches to be part of the solution more than, than what I see them as today? I think it's part of the reality of our business. We, we talk about coaching changes. I think this year is a low, it's about 50 changes made. So th there is an element of self-preservation that goes into to coaching. Um, but even honestly greater than that, young men are advised. I'm an institution that had, when I got to Georgia Tech, we had a retention rate of about 67% overall, which is one of the lowest in our league. Now, Dr. Wayne Clough, who's now moving up to the Sonia, made some changes, and our retention rate is up in the upper 80s now. 
But that was commonly used as a recruiting tool against me, that if you go to Georgia Tech, you're going to have a hard time staying in school and staying eligible. Uh, the reality is every one of these young men, when they come into college, just like it would be for a golfer, baseball player, football player, skater, has aspirations of playing professional sports. And men's basketball, because we spanned two semesters, because of all the professional opportunities out there, that is a, that's a major consideration. Can I stay eligible to move towards my goal? I think there are changes out there. I've advocated for the longest time that we should be a one-semester sport. That's not going to happen. The reality is just like coaches want to keep players eligible, we have a very good thing going with a contract with CBS that nobody wants to break open and change. It's the reality of the matter. Now, again, let me make it very clear. I'm not advocating that we dumb down college sports. But I'm just telling you, what: if we want to change the behaviors of kids, rarely do numbers motivate them. People motivate them. Uh, decision, helping them decisions. I think one of the things that we're discussing on our subcommittee about transfers is the idea of if you have over a 2.6 and you transfer, you're not going to be a penalty to that home institution. Well, Herb Sendek, their coach at NC State, I thought came, I mean, uh, Arizona State came with a great idea. Why don't we tell them, okay, if you don't have the 2.6 and you want to transfer with a degree, you have to go to a school that's going to take a larger percentage of your credits towards graduation. Because commonly what happens when you transfer, you lose credits, right? So those type of rules change behavior, not the hard and fast numbers. I hope I'm answering. Again, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to be naive. I don't want to mislead you and think that coaches don't think about themselves. We all think about it. We all do. Everybody at this table does. But at the same time, I would tell you the overwhelming majority of our coaches, like the issue of shortening the schedule, I would say seven out of every ten coaches I talk to advocate shortening the schedule and, and pushing back when we start practice. I talk to veteran coaches who say, we used to play our first game after Thanksgiving. Now we're playing November 9th. It's too early. We go into final exams typically around the 8th or 9th, Dr. Adams in Georgia, okay, Georgia and Georgia Tech. Well, the week before that, I'm playing in the ACC Big Ten Challenge every other year on the road. And then I'm going to tell a freshman, you know, hey, and we do. We bring tutors on the road with us. Uh, let's work at this. Let's make sure you prepare for final exams. But we're on the road playing at Minnesota on a Wednesday night, and then we start finals that Monday. There's a mixed message being sent out here. And I think we all have to recognize that. There's a, there's a big-time mixed message sent out. And I, I do think the coaches are the route. The one thing I've always said to, to my athletic director, former athletic Dave Brain, who had an unbelievable relationship with him, we could talk very frankly. I said, Dave, if you ever get to the point where you don't trust me, you should fire me. You should fire me. You should find somebody you trust because you're paying me way too much money. I started as a high school basketball coach, and now I'm coaching the ACC and I'm in too visible position. If you don't trust me, you should find somebody you trust. And if you can't find somebody you trust, then you should disband your program. Coach uh, Hewitt, you, you mentioned the um, that you said seven seventy percent of the coaches would like to see the season shortened. The ones that I've spoken to, I see approximately which seven I out of ten. Find uh, I'm, I'm surprised, but pleased. Well, wh wh what do you see as where is the impediment? To shortening the season, I mean, what, uh, who, who is resisting? Who would be the uh, group or individuals that would resist a shortened season? In your, in your view, I, I, I don't know who it is, and I, I don't know where 
the, the that process is in terms of looking at shortened season. But just my 20 years in the business, I would guess that athletic directors and presidents, when they look at the shortfall financially, may and again, I'm I'm just that's my opinion. That's that's no scientific sample. Right. But I do know that the coaches I've talked to when I'm on the road, I say, what do you guys think about this? And they all say, hey, season's too long. It's too long for us. It's too long for our kids. Uh, it's too long. I happen to agree with you, but Mike. <clears throat> yeah, I I know the press is here, and it's fairly well known that I'm pretty high on Coach Hewitt. He's a friend, but I'm going to ask him a couple questions. And Paul, you can either give me your personal opinion or the black coaches or or both, however you want to phrase it. As you as you know, there's probably more dialogue right now between the NCAA and the NBA than there's been in a in a long time. Um, clearly anything that the NBA does on admission is going to have to be approved by the Players Association. But given the one-and-done situations the last couple years, uh, I'd be interested in either personally or or your group or both, what what do you think is a fair way of doing it? Is it is it two years? Is it three years? What what ought to be our position in those uh, discussions? And then a little further afield, um, there's also a lot more discussion at the NCAA now about penalties following coaches, and I'd be interested in your opinion on that as well. In regards to the early entry rule, I. I've come to the point now where I think if a young man wants to go out of high school, we should allow them to go. But once they enter college, I'd like to see the baseball rule three years. Uh, I think that would create a lot more sanity for everybody. It would it would put the agents off, the, the quote-unquote runners off. Um, in talking to agents uh, that I know very well, the NFL Players Association is much more vigilant on the conduct of agents. Um, if you screw up a contract, there was a situation that an agent revealed to me last week where an agent signed, had his client sign a contract, but he didn't read all the documents. And by not reading the documents, he cost the young man a signing bonus. Well, that guy was decertified. Um, there are days set up for agents to come on campus in football. You're familiar with them. and It's just much more controlled. Um, but, again, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that every young man should go to college. If they don't want to go, they shouldn't have to go. I think if they can come out of high school and they want to do it, they should. Let them go. But if once they get to college, I think the baseball rule works fine. It will create a lot more sanity. It will keep the young man away from that thought of every year, am I going to go, am I going to go, and just at least two years concentrate on your school. Then at the end of your third year, make a, a sane decision. Yeah, exactly. They can, they can enter an name after the third year. Um, your, your second question? I'm mixed on that because when you look at the – the low income, or what do you, what have you referred to them? Low resource institutions. Uh, quite often they're HBCUs, and there are times when, when, when coaches may work at those schools. That's your way to get into the profession, and you do a good job, and you move, but maybe because of those low resources, you don't have the APR that's needed. So um, I think in cases of clear cut NCAA violations, yes, they should follow them. In terms of APR, I'm mixed on that. I really am. Paul, Mike, can I can I just interject, Mike? You didn't ask me this question, but but I want to say one other piece about the the NBA rule. I I, uh, I used to believe that, and, and I think I probably still do believe that the best one is 
the baseball rule. Either you go straight out of high school or you or you wait three years. I think that the one year has has had an impact that we cannot and should not ignore. I think it has held a lot of high school students in place, understanding that they need to do well academically in high school because they have at least one year that they're going to have to go to college compared to what we had when we had no limitation at all. And I think that uh, that is an improvement. I'm not sure that it's the right place to be, but I, but I don't think we should uh, but I don't believe it deserves all of the um, uh, all of the uh, discredit that it has received in some places. Yeah, I I, uh, I think all of these issues, or most all of them, have uh, two sides to them. I uh, I think one of the smartest things we've done is where Coach Hewitt started, and and that's the 16 core course rule that's that's gonna going to move up and uh, and I think that's had a uh, a very uh, important effect preparation wise I do think though there is there is still a <clears throat> there is there is still a philosophical message on the academic side of the house about whether or not we want to send messages that that one and done is okay regardless of how prepared you are and and that's that's where I think um, the, the crux of the matter comes. I, I happen to uh, agree with Paul. I, I I think baseball is closer to having it right right now than basketball is, but I don't discount the notion that we have to be careful about what message we send and we're going to have a lot of young people who are certain that they can leave at the end of high school without preparing for college, and we all know we can count on our fingers in a year the number of kids who can really do that. So it's it's part of the, the conundrum and uh, um, we'll just have to play it out. Let me, let me say that in, in this instance the baseball rule is absolutely wrong and the reason is because disproportionate uh, failure, the burden of failure falls on the back of young men of color. And when you see numbers at 53% already, 53% of African American males do not graduate from high school, we should be building super highways to college not setting up barriers. These kids are too impressionable to give them a choice. We need to be able to almost say there is no choice. What I've heard is that, you know, they're giving us problems, they're giving us headaches versus us finding a solution to get more of these kids in college. Forget us. Let's think about them. And in the end, it comes down to let's forget about the baseball rule. I would say just go three years if we could do that. With all the discussion that we've had on the NBA, we should be able to pressure the NBA and the Players Union, and there are ways to do it, to be able to pressure them into at least three years without giving an opportunity for a high school uh, young man to be able to say, well, I think I'm going to be a pro. You know, they think they're going to be rap stars. They think they're going to be Bill Gates. They think they're going to be Sergey Brin. Yeah, can, can I respond to that? Yes, please. Uh, I, I don't... I don't disagree with you, Lynn, that the, the focus has got to be on the kids. But I, I frankly think a three-year rule helps that. And let, let me tell you. No, I, I agree with a three-year rule, but not giving them an option to, to come out of high school and play in the NBA. I say that that, well, that that is that's that's suicide. Well, I'm not sure the courts would agree with us on that, but. But we'll, I, I, we'll, think, I think they will. Well, they've we'll, already we'll, said the unions, if, if it's collectively bargained, Mike, and they say that this is the way it is, if the union and the league agrees, 
then that the, there's already precedent that says that the union represents prospective members of that union. Well, we'll 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 play that out. But let's let's also think about what's different now than from when you and I came along. Uh, the, virtually all of the Division One kids are in summer school right after high school. They can come to summer school with a full scholarship at most of the major institutions. Uh, if they're there for three years, if you come that first summer, you take a full load each succeeding time. Literally, in three years, you can be within one semester of completion. So I don't, I don't, I don't think it's quite as stark a misuse as, um, as, as some would say. And I, and I think we get a kid at that point very close to being able to complete a degree, which I think is the shared objective that we all have here. No, we agree on that point. I'm just saying let's not give them the out to say, okay, you can go and become a pro. We're coming uh, to, the, to the end of the session, and I, I have uh, a question I want to ask Coach Hewitt, and maybe you can incorporate the point you're getting ready to make. Uh, in, in your response. Actually, it's a two-part uh, question. The first is, um, I, I, I've been very concerned to read where we're starting to see um, student athlete, students at the, in the middle school be offered scholarships to our institutions. And, uh, you know, I just find that so unsettling and, and troubling. And I'd be interested in your your thoughts. Uh, are are we now seeing a drift to this um, recruitment way down into grades that we never thought would uh, where students athletes would be subject to recruiting? And any thoughts you have on that? Secondly, you, you're involved with the academic enhancement program for basketball players, and, and I, I think it would be useful for us to hear what you think are the two or three most promising uh, proposals uh, coming out of, out of that group, if you could. Um, first, back to the issue of um, early entry, Len, I, if I thought that was the, the fairest way, and I understand where you're coming from, I would be all for uh, a three-year rule. But one thing about the one-year rule, people don't, we, we often focus on the kids that are leaving. But we don't focus on the kids who came in with the intention of being there one year and gone. And all of a sudden, I, I looked at the ticker last night, and I saw three names come across. And I know from being around the circuit that those kids had every intention of leaving after one year. Now they're getting ready to go back to their junior years in college. So that is one of the, the positive impacts of, the, uh, of that rule. Uh, we have a tendency in our society to focus on you know, the outlandish, um, there have been two eighth graders in three years offered scholarships, and uh, it is, it's ridiculous. There's no other word to describe it. It's ridiculous. But you also have to understand parents and coaches are working hard to put these kids on a grand stage. When I spoke to Amy last week, I, had, I didn't bring you with me, but there was a quote-unquote eighth grade combine held down in Texas by John Lucas. So that, that's wrong. That's ridiculous. But, but the part about offering a scholarship, if, if these kids with no child left behind, after the eighth grade, if they scored in the 99.9 percentile in math and say University of Georgia or Georgia Tech said, you have a scholarship to come to our school, would we think that's wrong? I just think they don't have to well. take it, but would we think that's wrong? No, but I'm saying if, if right now, if you said scoring in the 99.9 .9 percentile in math, that 
you know, this is the type of young person we want. You want to encourage them to get ready to go to college. Would we think that's wrong? We would. We have a number of programs now, Paul, where where particularly for uh, underprivileged, predominantly young people of color, at about the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, we start bringing them to campus in the summers and educating them about what their opportunities are. Most of them are are first generation college students uh, if they matriculate uh, uh, at all. And we we put many of them now. We've got a whole program that Coke and some other people fund where we we bring them and put them into fairly high level math and science classes in in the summer to to bring them along. But I, I must I must say that I I would draw some distinction between the core educational mission of the university and our commitment to doing that and the athletic mission of the university, which probably wouldn't cause me to do that with kids at the 7th and 8th grade level, other than those that voluntarily went to camp. The recruiting part, the recruiting part is wrong, but the offer that there's a place for you here, if you can qualify, and yeah, you will add something different than the mathematics or the science, you will add something different, but if you qualify for this university, there's a place here. In some ways, I mean, I, I think it's abhorrent, the recruiting part of it, but the idea, the concept of saying there's a spot for you here and having these kids work towards that, I don't see much wrong with that. And that's, that's my point about building super highways. Any way you can get them there if they're qualified to get in is the way you have to work. Yeah. Maybe we could continue this uh, part of the discussion uh, later. I just, uh, before we break up, I would like to hear Coach Hewitt's thoughts on the most promising uh, proposals coming out of the enhancement committee. Well, there are several things being talked about. I think we'll have hard proposals uh, come August when we meet. But um, I, I'm really intrigued by the schedule restrictions. Again, pushing back the start of practice, pushing back reducing the number of games. I'm very intrigued by that. Um, I'm intrigued by the summer access. Uh, what happens quite, on, quite often in our, in our sport, because we can't work out with our guys during the summertime, um, trainers are becoming more, individual trainers becoming more popular. Uh, situations, uh, institutes like IMG can bring kids down and work them out of some because we can't work out with them. I had a situation two weeks ago where I walked in my gym on a Saturday morning getting set up for basketball camp. I walked in my gym and there was one of my guys working out with a guy in the community. Nice guy. I know him. Um, but I'm not sure that's what we all want, somebody on the outside. Now, I trust him, so I didn't mind it, but there are times when kids fall into those situations where they're working out with guys who are go-betweens, the agents, and uh, people who try to shape their decision, again, try to change their behavior. Um, I think the summer school idea is, is, is brilliant. I think the idea of, uh, of, of allowing or, or really requiring people to step up to the table, as Miles Brandon said, to pay for summer school. I don't like the, the suggestion that you have to pass six hours of summer school in order to be eligible in the fall for basketball and only basketball. I, I think that we ask them to be eligible after high school, and now we're telling them there's another hurdle you've got to jump through to be eligible again. I don't like that at all. I think it's very unfair. And again, we tend to do that to men's basketball. Why? I'm not sure. Maybe because it's the most visible. But we tend to pile on when it comes to men's basketball. When I go back to the first thing I said, in my, in my heart of hearts, I think coaches are doing a, a very respectable job given the circumstances we deal with. The two semesters, the turnover, 
um, again, just the totally unstructured way kids are brought into the NBA Players Association. Kids look at it like they're being drafted. I look at it like you're becoming a member of that union, a working member of that union. Um, but those are some of the things. And there's some things that transfers that Bill referenced. That uh, One idea that we talked about was uh, communicating and, and maybe signing junior college players during your first year and to have them come up on campus between their first and second year, take six hours so they get more familiar with your institution and they, you become more familiar with them. So when they come back to fully matriculate after their second year in graduation, I think they have a better idea what they're getting into. So there, there are a number of positive things, and I think the, the enhancement group is a very good idea. Thank you very much. Well, uh, we've come to the end of this, uh, this session, and uh, I want to ask my colleagues on the commission to join me in thanking our panelists for a very, very good discussion. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org.